This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been producing short, iconic interviews with some of the brightest minds of our time. The Think Again podcast is us shaking things up. The producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips on every conceivable subject. Space travel, xenophobia, sex, we have to discuss them. There is no escape. My guest today is Sam Harris. He's the author of numerous, lucid, meticulous, engaging books on the subjects of religion, morality, and consciousness, including The End of Faith and Waking Up. His latest book, co-authored with Majid Nawaz, is Islam and the Future of Tolerance, a Dialogue. Welcome to Think Again, Sam. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you on the show. And uh, one of the things I really admire about you as a thinker is that although you have some very strong convictions, you always seem willing to dialogue with people who disagree with you. On Tim Ferriss's podcast, you pointed out recently that debate as a format appeals to you less and less because the emphasis isn't on learning anything, but on defending what you already believe. And in your new book, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, you talk rather than debate with Majid Nawaz, a former Muslim extremist who now works to promote tolerance for and within Islam. He believes that Islam isn't inherently incompatible with democratic and human rights values. You're not so sure. I wonder whether you learned anything from that conversation, and if so, what? Yeah, I, I learned a lot from uh, Majid, and I continue to learn from him, and he's really now a friend. It's, it's really a great example of a conversation starting in a place where you really had no reasonable expectation that much good would come out of it, and then it became a, a totally pleasant and useful collaboration. So. I encourage people to look at that book. I mean, the chief virtue of the book for me is that the conversation found a fundamentally new starting point. We don't, we by no means pretend to have solved all the problems of how to, to reform or liberalize Islam and much less how to spread the imperative for doing that widely in the Muslim world or in the West. But it's a fundamentally new way to have the conversation about these very fraught topics of just how uh, heartfelt religious ideas within the Muslim tradition collide with principles of free speech and open societies and pluralism and tolerance, etc. You know, the main thing I learned from Majid that is of immense pragmatic value is that because within within Sunni Islam, which is 80% of the Muslim world, because there is no actual ecclesiastical hierarchy, there's no pope, there's no, there's really no place to stand where you say that, where you can say you have the one true version that applies to all Muslims. 
you are left with a, in principle, a kind of indissoluble pluralism. There's just there's no way around the fact that there'll be a plurality of views, some of which are, are, are just irreconcilable with others. And the only way to integrate that successfully politically is to be committed to secularism. And you should be able to sell this idea of, of secularism, of keeping religion out of politics and out of public policy, even to people who are religious conservatives, because it is the only way to protect them from having their views intruded upon by their neighbors. So Majid argues that we'll move from secularism to liberalism and more you know, obvious democratic values. And so finding that foothold for secularism was something that I think is a novel approach, and it's really a an idea that has to be spread widely. Yeah, I mean, I, as I was reading it, I, I felt that you and Majid had, in many ways, a lot more in common in terms of values than you disagreed on. And I would like to hear the conversations that he's trying to have with not jihadists necessarily, but maybe that too, people on the more extreme end of the spectrum and sort of how you move that dial. Yeah, it's essential and difficult work that he's doing. And, you know, as a measure of just how hard he's got it, at one point in the dialogue, he says he gets probably more criticism from Muslims for talking to someone like me than for talking to jihadists, I mean, literally you know, failed suicide bombers or people who are currently aspiring to spread ISIS-style Islam throughout the world. So the fact that sitting down with an atheist, scientist, critic of religion is even more provocative to ostensibly mainstream Muslims than speaking to jihadists or Islamists that's a problem, and they just have to honestly bear witness to it and use it as a starting point for a fairly intrusive dialogue about first principles, ethically and politically. You know, your book is very much about being able to talk about things that people regularly can't talk about without shutting one another down or silencing one another, shaming one another into silence. And I was thinking about you know, Mary Beard, the classicist historian at Cambridge, who, you know, she's a public figure in England and she came on TV recently and said something pro-immigration. And the trolls across the internet came out virulently against her, sending her rape threats, sending her pictures of vagina superimposed on her face, you know, these sorts of things. And she, rather than cowering, wrote back to hundreds of them and got in some very interesting dialogues as a result. You know, I, I was thinking in many ways your book is about not allowing ourselves to be intimidated into silence on issues that are difficult to talk about. Yeah, and some of that is you know, what you described there with Mary Beard is just the phenomenon of what the internet has done to the human mind. The fact that behind the veil of anonymity, you know, people will just kind of let loose the inner maniac in a way that they never would face-to-face. -to, -face. to some degree, we're, we're suffering from a, a paucity of face-to-face -face conversation, and what we're seeing play out online is analogous to road rage. You know, people will say and do things in the privacy of their cars that they just never would if they were out among people. And, you know, that's, that's just a, a psychological experiment that we're all being subjected to at the moment. The challenge really is to have uncomfortable conversations because there's really only two choices. We have a choice between conversation and violence in every situation where the stakes are high. When you're trying to, to modulate another person's behavior, 
you can either do it with words or you can do it with force. And, you know, if there's a third option there, human beings haven't discovered it. A conversation really is, if it's channeled along the the rails of political correctness and self-deception and utopian ideals of all of us living together in a multicultural paradise where no one's core values collide with anyone else's, we're going to be mystified by the problems we run into every time. And so we, we have to be honest about what's going on in the world. And what is going on is that you have, in this particular case, some subset of the Muslim world powerfully motivated by specific ideas, jihad, martyrdom, apostasy, blasphemy, the establishment of a global caliphate, which are deeply at odds with more or less everything we care about and are right to care about. And we just have to confront that and confront those ideas head on. And and Muslims worldwide have to do that as well. Yeah, I would agree with you. And it will be difficult work, but I'm glad that you're doing it. I'm glad Majid is doing it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and on that note, I think let's move to the next phase where we will discuss things that we know not of. Sure. All right. Let's see what the first video is here. It is Richard Nisbet, professor, University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, and it is called Think You're Thinking for Yourself, Think Again. There's no more central message of psychology than the fact that most of what goes on in our heads, we have no access to, we have no idea that it's going on. I was at a World Economic Forum a while back And there were a bunch of economists and psychologists and political scientists and physicians and government people and business people. And our job was to think of ways to get people to do things that are in society's interests. And the word incentivize came up over and over again. And usually that was followed by some kind of idea about a monetary reward or a fine of some sort. I was the lone social psychologist, and I'm thinking, you know, (laughs) incentives can backfire often. What social psychologists have learned is that what other people are doing can often be vastly more powerful than anything you can do in the way of incentives. A lovely example of this is the state of California recently started hanging tags on people's doors. If they were using more electricity than their neighbors, it says you're using more electricity than your neighbors and they cut down significantly. The monetary incentives, I don't think, could have touched that magnitude of an effect. Social psychologists just keep finding the extent to which we are powerfully influenced by other people's behavior. Dr. Nisbet has uh, reminded me that I need to clarify what I just said about conversation and violence being the only two choices. I I would put incentives in the category of conversation for the purposes of what we just spoke about. We, there is no incentive we're going to offer the Islamic State that is going to uh, motivate them to change their worldview. We can't bribe them to do it. We can't pay them to do it in any other currency. And so this backfire effect uh, Nisbet referenced is especially true on, on terrain that people deem sacred. So if you this has been shown in like negotiations between the Palestinians and the Israelis. If you go to one side and say, you know, listen, would you give up this land for an apology from the Israeli government, say? Well, then they're open to it. But if would you give up this land in exchange for some other land or some money? 
will then know that's an affront to their sacred values, and they dig in their heels even further. So this whole area of incentives is very interesting, and it certainly extends beyond conversation. You're talking about the kinds of systems you put in place in a society and the kind of feedback you get, the kind of information that's publicly available of the sort that he just described. You know, the fact that your neighbors can know that you're using more energy than they do and, and you know that they know. and I mean, That's a, a very powerful uh, lever to pull. I mean, that's kind of a, a social shaming pressure brought to bear there. In, in extremis, when you're, when you're really talking about people having absolutely incompatible claims on the world and being willing to put their lives in jeopardy and their happiness in jeopardy and their resources in jeopardy to assert those claims is either dialogue or or violence that uh, remains. And so that's a, um, again, this is fascinating territory when you're talking about jiggering kind of background incentives that people don't even realize uh, or even beyond incentives, conditions that people don't even realize are influencing them. So you know, the, the hot coffee versus iced tea experiment. Right. Can you uh, sort of summarize briefly what that is, the hot coffee iced tea? Yeah, well, there's, there's this phenomenon of what's called priming, which is environmental an environmental influence or a sensory or perceptual influence that is affecting behavior, cognition, emotion, without your awareness and without your control. One that's very easy to establish is just like semantic priming, where if you gave someone a list of words to consider, and they all happen to be on the theme of the ocean, words like sand and waves and beach, and then you ask them to think of a brand of laundry detergent, some vast percentage of certainly Americans think of Tide in that context. (laughs) Whereas if you don't prime them that way, some think of Tide, but a much reduced percentage think of Tide. And when you ask the people who have been primed, why did you just think of Tide? They always have a story, and the story never is the truth, which is they were just influenced by the words they saw 10 minutes before in this other experiment that seemed to have no relationship to the current conversation you're having. So they they have some story about, you know, their their wife used to use Tide before they got married and they saw a box in the house. And it's a pure confabulation. And that's what Nisbet was referencing, that, that we have so little insight into the actual causes of our thoughts and actions in each moment. The greatest example of this, which is almost never remarked upon, is that we have absolutely no introspective awareness that we even have brains right? If you pay attention to your experience, you cannot notice that you have a brain. Uh, There's a wide range of effects that can be teased out in the lab, which all deliver the same message, which is that you often have no idea what is causing you to think and do what you do. And yet you will tell yourself when asked a very compelling story about why you did what you did. It's, It's very rare for people to come up against this kind of mystery at their backs that's pushing everything forward, uh, and and to honestly acknowledge, to have actually insight into its mysteriousness, and, and to say, yeah, you know, I don't know why I thought of that, um, which, is, which is almost always the case. I find it chilling as well, and maybe incompatible, or at least problematic up against the idea that dialogue or reading books or encountering ideas 
can change people fundamentally. I mean, the idea that there are all these forces over which we have no control that shape our consciousness, shape our beliefs, you know, in very profound ways. We don't know what they are, and they can be manipulated from the outside. I don't know, fills me with despair when I think about the idea of going and having discussions with people in order to change their minds. Yeah, well, I think we just have to be aware of how complicated the human mind is and how the truth is that awareness allows us to intelligently design forums and institutions and conventions of dialogue that uh, will be helpful more than than harmful. And I think that is certainly worth doing. But yeah, I mean, when you look at the data on people's implicit racism and you you hear reports that someone sent out thousands of resumes and all they did was change the name, you know, a, na- a black sounding name to an Asian sounding name or, a you know, an indeterminate name. And the hiring rates or the interview rates were antithetical. You know, that that's all very depressing. But having insight into those processes allows you to mitigate them. And we do that in um, various ways, and we certainly could do it better. But we we understand these facts about ourselves, these kind of non-normative psychological facts, which lead to reasoning errors and cognitive biases and prevent honest and profitable dialogue for reasons that, in the end, prove unnecessary. Right. On that note, I think let's take a look at what the next video is that they have for us. This one is Joyce Carol Oates talking about writing. Says, if America has great art, that's because it's a very chaotic country. This show is brought to you in part by the Art of Charm podcast. Who knew that plays well with others would turn out to be the most important thing on your childhood report card? Whatever you're trying to achieve in your life, it depends on connecting with and persuading other people. So why is that the one thing they don't teach you in school? Instead, we think of charisma as this mystical, elusive force that you either have or you don't. Nonsense. The Art of Charm podcast offers practical, immediately usable advice for networking, public speaking, negotiation, finance, fitness, and more based on solid clinical psychology and tested, replicable, real-world success, not pop psych speculation. Also, it's a thoroughly entertaining listen. There's nothing manipulative or magical about becoming a better communicator. It's a set of skills you can learn, and there's no good reason to spend your life held back by bad interpersonal habits. Go to theartofcharm.com forward slash podcast or find The Art of Charm in iTunes or Stitcher and start taking your life to the next level. And now let's get back to Think Again. Most people, I think, who write are involved in an attempt to solve a problem of what really happened, what motives are, what the subterranean meanings are in, in an event. And many people can only do that if they are very introspective and they think about it and they maybe write about it over a period of time rather than doing something very haphazard and intuitive. So I, this is maybe the project of art itself is to understand ourselves and understand the world and maybe to communicate some meaning because life in itself is a rush and it's chaotic and in the turmoil meaning tends to be lost and we feel a malaise and we feel despair if there isn't evidently meaning in our lives so there are times in in cultures in crisis 
where there's a feeling of an atmosphere of despair, like a collective despair. And I think, oddly enough, that art can flourish in those times because art is a way of trying to focus and still the chaos and look for, for meaning. So I think that's one of the projects of, of the novelist. You write nonfiction primarily, as far as I know. I very much enjoy your writing and think you have a strong aesthetic sense as a, as a writer. I wonder what you think about the relative effects of the kind of writing you do, which might be called philosophy, and art, on the other hand, in terms of making sense of the world, you know, getting at meaning. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts just in general on that topic. Well, I, I tend to have trouble with this word meaning. I think it's, you know, as in what is the meaning of life? I think that is a just a bad question. And <laughs> people struggle to have an answer. People struggle to find an answer to it is often taken as some deficit. There's something missing if you can't answer that question. And the answers people do put forward, like love or God or what are you, faith or whatever, uh, you know, no matter how articulate you are on those topics, they tend to sound platitudinous and not all that useful in the end or even inspiring. Right. Now, I think it's, you know, to say that, you know, the meaning of life is love, you know, discovering love in yourself and, you know, surrounding yourself with people you love and sharing love. I mean, that experientially, that's probably as good as it gets, but it, it doesn't get you science. It doesn't get you an understanding of the cosmos. It so there's just, it's not a, there's not a good fit between all the things that are good about existence and this question about meaning. And so, you know, art, you know, I love art and I consume some forms much more than others, but they're certainly, as you said, you know, attentive to the aesthetics of, of producing nonfiction. So it's, you know, there's, there's certainly an art in doing that. So you don't have to be just making stuff up to have an artistic sensibility. What art does in many respects is give us certainly, you know, fiction of the sort that Joyce Carol Oates is talking about there gives us an experience of other minds that we, albeit made up minds, that we don't get otherwise. You, you, can, you can literally get inside someone's head and have access to their thoughts or what the author is telling you their thoughts are. And it's a, it's a kind of you know, simulated telepathy, which is very powerful. I mean, you can live vicariously through people, so through fictional characters, and you do this in, in fiction and film, and experience ranges of emotion that your own life doesn't necessarily produce in you. I mean, for instance, I remember as a teenager, my father was dying of cancer, and that was the year that um, Terms of Endearment came out. And I remember leaving the hospital and going to see that film. And I haven't seen that film in, in decades. I don't know how well it holds up, but the focus of the film is on someone's terminal illness. And I remember crying watching the film in a way that I that I hadn't cried in my father's hospital room. Right. Right. And so there, that could see, sound pathological stated that way. But what really happened was that the film created a, a very powerful outlet for me to really kind of run through that whole emotional arc and to, to kind of understand the situation I was in better than the actual data of my life was allowing me to do it in that moment. The range of experience that you can have appreciating art 
you know, kind of running it on your brain as a piece of software is far beyond what any of us individually are, are going to experience, uh, no matter how adventurous our, our lives become. So it's it's incredibly useful. And I mean, just one one reference I'll, I'll give readers who may have not heard of it, but Joyce Carol Oates's own work uh, offers a great example of this. There's a, a story that she wrote, again, decades ago, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Which is the story of essentially a, a serial killer showing up to abduct a, I think, a, I don't know, 14, 15-year-old girl. And it's just about the conversation he has with her. There, there's some intimation, I think, that he is, in fact, Satan, given in the story. But it's one of the spookier stories ever written, kind of the manipulation of this little girl by this truly evil person. And to write it, she had to so get in the head of evil to do this credibly. And it exposes you, you know, you can actually learn something about what a psychopath is like from reading this story insofar as she credibly produced this. And and so it's a, there's a sense in which art literally expands our experience into other lives, which we can't otherwise achieve. And so it's, it's, it's incredibly powerful that way. What you were saying about that Joyce Carol Oates story reminds me also of my own feelings about Lolita by Nabokov, which I think is one of the, the best books I've ever read in the English language. And it's a book that some people will never read because they sort of have heard that the subject matter is disturbing and involves a pedophile and they don't want to go there. But what is so brilliant about it is that you go there, the, the main character is uh, so charismatic, Humbert Humbert, so seductive, so sort of funny and wry in his observations of the world. You go deep into his consciousness, you know, and all the way along the ride before you're like, oh my God, this is a hideous, twisted person in many ways. But, you know, I wonder whether that kind of experience can also better enable us to have the kinds of dialogues that you're trying to have, uh, that Majid is trying to have, to understand people who are looking at the world in a radically different way. Yeah, well, I think it would be great to produce art in this area. And you know, some people have done that to some degree. But I, I think a novel that puts you very much in the head of someone like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi would be a very powerful document because you know, if one did this right, you would see the internal consistency and the absolute sense of his own personal you know, rectitude. I mean, the, the, these guys, unlike Humbert Humbert, these guys have no awareness that they are failing to follow some norm that they endorse, right. right? They are following all the norms they endorse. They are prototypically good within their worldview. Yeah, I mean, the, so, you know, there are ways. I, I think there there probably are forms of art that the net result of which are not helpful. You know, they they may be titillating or even genuine masterpieces of a kind, but they sort of mislead us about what human life is actually like, or what is actually possible, or what is desirable. And if there's any criticism to to be leveled at Nabokov for Lolita. I think you probably could level the charge at him that he did, in fact, make Humbert Humbert far too charismatic and attractive. And in response to criticism, when he kind of threw it back on the reader saying, well, you know, it's, it's your fault that you 
went along for the ride with him in that way because he is, he is just a monster and I knew it all along. He's um, he's such a, an attractive monster that it's you know every every reader g- can be forgiven for having kind of rooted for him to get his conquest. You know, I mean, you you become a bit of a pedophile along with him for part of that book because he is such delightful company, and that's part of the genius of it. But you know, arguably, it's part of what is from a pedagogical point of view or an ethical point of view. It's it's not. Um, you find yourself on the wrong side from time to time, and you know maybe that's an insight into human nature, or maybe it's it's corrupting of it, or both. I don't I don't know. Interesting. I mean, we we should probably move on to the next conversation, sure. but I want to I, I just want to tease this out a little bit further because I, I think it's very interesting territory. This this territory between thinking of someone as a monster because we condemn and need to condemn them morally, and on the other hand, recognizing them as a human being, which may actually be necessary if we are to change them, if that's even possible. I think I wouldn't condemn Nabokov's project in making Humbert charismatic. Like, I don't know that it's his responsibility to make him abhorrent. Uh, He's a, it's his responsibility possibly to take us there into his consciousness. And if he's attractive to us, he's attractive. It's not like a gotcha thing. It's like, you know. Well, no, yeah, no, I I guess I'm not. That, well, there was a bit of a gotcha. And just, I just remember, and I don't know where this appeared, but I remember some places in which he discussed Lolita and okay. discussed it as though you perverts who, <laughs> to, who, who liked Humbert Humbert, you know, I, I can't believe that you didn't realize that he was a monster. Okay. It's, like, it's like he he distanced himself from Humbert Humbert in a way that I didn't think was credible. But you know, so another example, you know, from film would be like far less of a, of an achievement artistically, but something like you know Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. So I guess that's that's right. you know, originally a book too. But um, you know, so you got Anthony Hopkins playing Hannibal Lecter. I mean, you, you love Hannibal Lecter, right? You <laughs> right. want to, you, 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 you know, you want to get back to the Hannibal Lecter scenes in that movie, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's part of the fun of film and and fiction generally. But no one who made that film, and certainly not Anthony Hopkins, would turn around on you and say, you know, what the hell is wrong with you that you right. liked Hannibal Lecter? Right. I would say that you know Nabokov was rather naughty intellectually, and I wouldn't necessarily trust him in any public iteration to be, you know, doing yeah. anything other than toying with the interviewer at any given time. Yeah. 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 And also, we we also should remember just as a, a free speech issue that he got hammered for Lolita and right. And um, I, I don't remember all the details of how it was banned or almost banned and and uh, how he was pilloried but it, he, you know it was a rough ride publishing that book indeed indeed um all right sam so shall we uh shall we move on to the third and final round sure all right let's see what we have next this one is david eagleman ah. neuroscientist the exact number of computers needed to simulate the human brain is almost inconceivable The big picture in modern neuroscience is that you are the sum total of all the pieces and parts of your brain, this vastly complicated network of neurons, uh, almost 100 billion neurons, each of which has 10,000 connections to its neighbors. It's a system of such complexity that it bankrupts our language, but fundamentally it's only three pounds and we've got it cornered and it's right there and it's a physical system. 
the computational hypothesis of brain function suggests that the physical wetware isn't the stuff that matters. It's what are the algorithms that are running on top of the wetware. In other words, what is the brain actually doing? What's it implementing software-wise? Hypothetically, we should be able to take the physical stuff of the brain and reproduce what it's doing, in other words, reproduce its software on other substrates. So we could take your brain and reproduce it out of beer cans and tennis balls and it would still run just fine. And if we said, hey, how are you feeling in there? This beer can tennis ball machine would say, oh, I'm feeling fine, it's a little cold, whatever. The challenges of reproducing a brain can't be underestimated. It, it would take something like a zettabyte of computational capacity to run a simulation of a human brain. And that is the entire computational capacity of our planet right now. So Eagleman raises many topics that I'm very interested in. Strangely, I feel like he oversells the difficulty of simulating a human brain, but undersells the implausibility of uploading human consciousness into the matrix of some sort. I don't know where he got his computational estimate of what it would take to simulate a human brain. I think it's the brain is as complicated as he makes it out to be, but how much of that complexity is actually doing the information processing is another question. I think that, I think it becomes less complicated when you talk about what is actually functionally necessary to to achieve human level uh, intelligence or to copy out the information from one brain into, into silica. But um, this idea of uploading is a very interesting question, and it runs up against some philosophical paradoxes that were first brought out by uh, the philosopher Derek Parfit in a book called Reasons and Persons, which is a truly brilliant book. He talks about problems of identity when you imagine copying minds or teleporting. He, he created a thought experiment called the teletransporter experiment, which is the idea that you could get into a, a pod somewhere and have all of the information in your brain copied and then beamed to Mars or some other remote location and then get reassembled by nanobots there and, and have a perfect replica of yourself with all of your memories and opinions and biases intact. And that the, you know, the person stepping out of the pod on Mars would remember entering the pod on Earth and pushing the, the button, and there'd be a full case of, of, of psychological continuity there. And many people think, well, that, that would be you. And Eagleman seems to suggest that that would be you. But the problem is, is that there are two ways you could describe this scenario. The first way is you step into the pod on Earth and you get disassembled. So you sort of get smashed to atoms, but then perfectly reassembled and then step out of the pod on Mars. Right. Well, that sort of seems to be you. But imagine they don't disassemble you before beaming your information. They just read out the information. And then you're standing in the pod on Earth and a voice comes over the, the speaker that says, you know, congratulations, Mr. Gotts, you've been successfully copied. Um, now we're going to smash you to atoms. You know, we don't need your Earth body anymore. Right. That's just going to seem like a, an ordinary murder, right? You're, you're still going to be the guy in the pod saying, right. wait a minute, you know, I'm still here. So th this question of identity is an interesting one. And, I, and certainly in the case of, of duplicating minds, I think all you're doing is duplicating minds. You're not actually moving 
a mind from one place to another. So if I if I copied out the contents of your of your brain and uploaded it into the matrix, you would still be sitting there uh, now, being assured that you're you're, you're going to live on in the matrix right. and enjoy immortality, and that will be you know no comfort at all to you, really. How we would upload is is a is a bit of a conundrum. I mean, obviously, it matters to us, like who we are. We the idea of our own identity. Uh, we want to know which one is the real us. But I mean, in this context, isn't that just kind of a language confusion or something? I mean, like, who's to say what is the real us at that point? You've got these two things. It's, let's say the consciousness and yeah, and the body on Mars were absolutely identical. The original you would protest that indeed it was the original you, but does that actually have meaning at that point? Well, I think it does at that point. It, it arguably has less meaning if the original you got destroyed and now we're just in the presence of the copy. And, and again, the copy would, would need to have psychological continuity with you. So it doesn't have physical continuity because it's, it's new atoms, but organized exactly the way your old atoms were. And we could, we could also do the experiment slightly differently where we just replace your neurons one by one with, with new neurons or new or, or artificial neurons that function in the same way. So, you know, you, you, let's, say, let's say you get a brain injury or you start suffering some disease process and, you know, the doctors come in and say, you know, you're, you're, you're in luck. We can fix all this. We're, we're going to give you new f totally functioning neurons that replace your old neurons and they function in exactly the same way. So your memories are intact and here now we're replacing them one by one and you feel the same and you, ha you have the same capacities. You still know how to play the piano and you're no better and you're no worse. And you could, you could go through the full replacement with everything intact and, and perhaps no interruption in your consciousness, right? No sense of now I'm my copy on Mars. And this pushes our intuitions in another way. This really does seem like, well, that that's still going to be me, right? That uh, there's There's psychological continuity. There's a gradual swapping of, of atoms, and so my identity seems to be intact in a way that it doesn't if you just tell me that I've been perfectly copied on Mars and now you're going to destroy me. It's, it's hard to resolve intuitively. I, I think identity is, is, a, is a kind of fishy concept, and it's, you know, from my point, this, is, this connects with other work I've done in, in my book, Waking Up and Free Will, and, and it's, you know, I, the self... As we as we feel it to be, uh, is an illusion. I mean, it's it's, it's an illusion that, that doesn't make. There's two there's two sides from which you can see that it's an illusion. It's an illusion neurologically. It doesn't make any sense neurologically to think that that there's a a center to consciousness and and like a, a thinker of thoughts and a and a this feeling that we call I that's like a you know a rider on the horse of consciousness just carried through from one moment to the next without any changes. Um, uh, that doesn't make sense because the, there's no place where the brain w would be doing that. But it also doesn't make sense because you can actually lose this experience yourself. You can disconfirm it through practices of uh, like meditation, or it can just happen to you, you know, while you're playing sports, or you can you know take various psychedelics. I mean, the, the, the sense of 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 I can be easily eroded, you know, if only temporarily. But you can you can certainly experience consciousness shorn of this feeling of being a self. But there still is the fact that consciousness in your case is only experiencing a certain domain of, of facts. And 
if one of those facts is you are now standing in a pod being told you've been copied, that's not the same sphere of consciousness as the your copy on Mars who just remembers pushing the button on Earth and now he's now he's arrived in Mars and now he's beginning to have a different life than yours. I mean, the issue for me is primacy. Like at that point, on what grounds would you establish that the one on Earth is more you uh, just simply because it also knows that it's been told that there's a copy like that, that it seems to me like it, it's not. Well, it, well, it, it, well, it's more you in the sense that it's the only one still in the pod, you know, and it's 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 not, you could almost ask the same question with anyone else. I mean, how are you more you than I am you right now? Because it, <laughs> right. What we do, you know, we just have consciousness, right? You, you, right. You have, there's just consciousness and its contents. And, you know, mine is the same of yours, mine is the same as yours, but for the contents. I mean, if, if you woke up tomorrow morning remembering everything I did today and believing uh, and thinking and expecting everything I believe, think, and expect you would be me, right? So you, it's like consciousness is the space in which all of these particulars are appearing. Right. And if we create a new space that has all of your particulars, well, then, yeah, it's, it's the same as you in every way that it, that, it, that it could be the same. But there's still the fact that you're over there and it's, it's on Mars. So and in my case, I'm just like, just like you, except we have different thoughts, perceptions, sensations, memories. But it's, it's still just the fact of consciousness and its contents. Right. Sam Harris, I could sit here and talk and listen to you uh, all day long, but then I, in order to justify that, I would have to make this episode three times longer than all the others. So I, I want to thank you for coming on Think Again today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Jason. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again with Sam Harris. I want to thank you all for listening, and if you're liking what you're hearing, go online, go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, wherever it is you're listening. Leave us a rating and ideally a review to let us know and let the rest of the world know what you think. I'll see you back here next week.